0: Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
3: Roger Stone has always been a controversial figure in American politics, and President Trump's commutation of his prison sentence is no less controversial. On Friday, Trump issued a commutation for his longtime ally, who'd been sentenced to three years in prison for witness tampering and lying to Congress. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter and English. Presidential pardon powers are extremely broad. So is this pardon of Roger Stone clearly within them?
4: It's absolutely within the president's power. The act of pardon is essentially the president forgiving somebody for a crime that they committed. It's rooted in Article 2, Section 2 of the United States Constitution, and it wipes the slate clean for the recipient, even halting judicial proceedings that may be underway. That's what a pardon is. A commutation, by contrast, which is what the president gave to Roger Stone, makes a punishment milder. In this case, it eliminated the prison sentence altogether, but it does not wipe out the underlying conviction.
3: Just let's go back a moment and explain what Roger Stone was convicted of and the prison term he was facing.
4: Roger Stone went to trial facing seven counts Uh, He ultimately was convicted on all of those seven counts, including five counts of lying to Congress, one count of witness tampering, and one count of obstruction of a proceeding. Basically, what those charges focused on was Stone's sworn testimony in September 2017 before the House Intelligence Committee, in which he allegedly misled the committee on several key elements of their probe was also charged with witness tampering by urging a former associate, a man named Randy Credico, to exercise his Fifth Amendment rights and to not cooperate with the committee.
3: President Trump has issued three dozen clemencies in three years, and critics find a problem with them in that he avoids the office of pardon attorney, which is the office that presidents normally go to because it's their duty to examine clemencies
4: sure president trump has issued 25 pardons and 11 commutations during his term in office the standard procedure for presidents is to let the justice department vet these possible pardons and commutations and they actually have a series of guidelines that they enforce in considering whether or not to grant clemency and this department within the department of justice investigates and reviews and then makes a recommendation to the president. In this case, President Trump tends to not follow the advice of the Office of Pardon Attorney, or in many cases, he has granted clemencies in situations where a request had not even been filed with the Office of Pardon Attorney. So he is departing from the standard practice that many presidents have used in the past, which is to rely on the Department of Justice the professionals who have institutional knowledge of how pardons and clemencies are typically granted, and in this case is acting more on his own without following those guidelines, or as I said earlier, in many cases without even a request having been made to that office in the first place.
3: Many presidents have faced criticism for how they used their pardon powers. Some say this particular pardon stands out because President Trump is granting clemency to someone who is convicted of lying to protect him, the president.
4: It's useful to put this into context. The history of presidential clemencies is replete with disputes over the years of whether or not these clemencies ought to have been handed down in the first place. As an example, in 1992, Lawrence Walsh, who was then the independent counsel investigating the Iran-Contra affair, filed a new indictment against former Defense Secretary Caspar Weinberger, then-President H.W. Bush responded the next month by pardoning Mr. Weinberger and five others. Bill Clinton, for example, issued more than 175 pardons or commutations on his last day in office, including one to his half-brother, Roger Clinton, and several other former administration officials. He also pardoned Susan McDougall, a former business partner from Arkansas, who spent 21 months behind bars refusing to, for refusing to cooperate with the independent counsel Kenneth Starr in the investigation of the Whitewater land venture. That case, though, it's important to point out, is one in which Susan McDougall had already served her sentence and had been released. But the biggest fear that came about during the Clinton administration was the pardon at the end of his term of financier Mark Rich, who had fled the country to avoid charges of evading $48 million in taxes and obtained clemency after his ex-wife, Denise Rich, a Democratic donor, contributed money to Mr. Clinton's presidential library. So there have been other controversial pardons or commutations in the past. What sets this apart is that this individual, Roger Stone, was the first one to be pardoned in connection with the investigation into the alleged ties between the Trump campaign and Russia and the dump of the WikiLeaks document. So the argument for those who are critics of this decision is to say that Mr. Trump essentially rewarded somebody for not cooperating with prosecutors and perhaps withholding information ultimately could have led to charges against the president or at least perhaps to have tied the president to information that showed that the Trump campaign had knowledge of these WikiLeaks dumps, which were used in the end of the campaign to try to discredit Mrs. Clinton, who was at the time running for president against Mr. Trump.
3: I've been talking to Robert Mintz of MacArthur in English about Trump's commutation of Roger Stone's sentence. Roger Stone's case in particular has drawn criticism from many people because it was also the case in which... Four prosecutors, four of the line prosecutors in the case, resigned from the case rather than revise their sentencing recommendation. This case seems to be one where time after time there's controversy.
4: In this case has been controversial right from the get-go. It started with the arrest of Roger Stone, where critics of the Department of Justice claimed that they came down with uh, an army of investigators and FBI agents, uh, overkill in, this, in the circumstance of Roger Stone, who was asleep in his house with his wife, uh, and then it just went on from there with one controversy after another. The latest controversy prior to this commutation of his sentence was the sentencing of Roger Stone itself, and that was a case where prosecutors had filed a sentencing memorandum calling for Stone to receive between seven and nine years in prison. The president tweeted that he thought that that recommendation was horrible and very unfair and a miscarriage of justice. And then within hours, the Justice Department told reporters that there was a mistake in the filing of that sentencing memorandum, which, again, had been filed with the court, had been presented to the judge. And the Department of Justice withdrew that recommendation and ultimately replaced it with a sentencing memorandum that recommended a more lenient sentence. And the move was considered so outrageous that the four career prosecutors who were handling the trial quit the case in protest. One of them, in fact, resigned from the Department of Justice altogether. And the revised recommendation that ultimately went to the court for a more lean sentence was signed only by the then-acting U.S. attorney who had been a former aide of Bill Barr and had been installed in the post less than two weeks earlier. Well, what's interesting there is ultimately... When the sentence was handed down, the judge did hand down a sentence that was less severe than the original recommendation by the original prosecutors. It was more in line with what the Barr recommendation uh, suggested. And Bill Barr, uh, to this day, has maintained that the prosecution of Roger Stone was righteous, as he put it. He believes it was a legitimate prosecution, and he believed the ultimate sentence of 40 months was fair. So... He is taking a position directly contrary to the president here by believing that the prosecution was not a witch hunt, that it was a fair prosecution, and that the sentence that ultimately was handed down here was the correct one.
3: This means that the conviction against Stone is still intact. He's appealing his conviction, says he wants to overturn it and clear his name. How difficult is it to get a conviction like his reversed on appeal?
4: The fact that the president here issued a commutation of sentence rather than a pardon means that the appeal of this conviction will continue to go forward. The appeal ensures that the facts tied to the Stone case, which includes evidence that the president knew about WikiLeaks plans to release the hacked emails damaging to Mrs. Clinton's 2016 campaign, that will continue to be an issue. It also means that There will be an odd circumstance here where the Attorney General, uh, William Barr, and his Justice Department will continue to defend that conviction, despite the fact that the president has condemned the prosecution as being unfair. The issues on appeal are essentially that the charges were politically motivated. Mr. Stone has claimed that the charges were fabricated and that he was denied a fair trial by an unbiased judge and by an honest jury. Uh, so he is going after a sort of broad range of charges about the entire process being unfair and uh, is trying to, I think, particularly focus on comments that were made by the jury for women, who later, it turns out, to have been someone who has tweeted uh, about uh, the president in an unfavorable way. And he's going to argue that he should have been give- granted a new trial based on the fact that this jury forum woman had not disclosed certain information about her prior political conduct, which was uh, not supportive of the president.
3: The fact that this is a commutation rather than a pardon means that Roger Stone can still plead the fifth if he's ever called to testify against the president.
4: One of the big distinctions between the pardon and the commutation is that not only is the underlying conviction still standing, which gives Roger Stone the right to clear his name, which is what Roger Stone wanted, by the way. He was not looking for a full pardon because he believes that he was wrongly convicted and wants the opportunity to clear his name in court. But one of the other consequences of the commutation is that it raises this interesting question about whether Mr. Stone will continue to have a Fifth Amendment right if he were to be subpoenaed before a grand jury and ask questions about his involvement with WikiLeaks and what he may or may not have told the president about that situation during the campaign.
3: Does the president commuting Roger Stone's sentence before he goes to prison and before he appeals his case, does it put a question mark about the fairness of the justice system?
4: Critics of the president would suggest that he has wielded the pardon power in a more overtly political way than many of his predecessors. For example, the president pardoned former Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio in August of 2017 regarding uh, Arpaio's ongoing legal battle and his conviction for contempt of court That was a case in which Arpaio had been supporting the president's agenda regarding illegal immigration. Another example was the pardoning of Scooter Libby, who was former Vice President Dick Cheney's aide. He was pardoned by the president. Another pardon that many people viewed as more political than in the national interest was a pardon of former New York City Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick, who was sentenced to four years in prison for failure to pay taxes. lying to White House officials. He also pardoned former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich, a Democrat who'd been convicted of public corruption and had actually been on the president's reality television show, which is how he got to know him. So there is this thread going through many of President Trump's pardons and commutations in which each of these individuals either know him personally or know a family member or know somebody who knows him well. And each of these individuals at least in the president's eyes, were either wrongly convicted or given a sentence that was too harsh, but they all in some way are tied either to the president personally or to the president's agenda. And that's why many of the critics are saying that he's using the presidential pardon and commutation power in a way that is unprecedented and inconsistent with the way that former presidents have used this very important and essentially unchecked power.
3: That's Robert Mintz of MacArthur in English.
5: Dot com.
1: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
3: The government backed down from a high-profile confrontation with Harvard University, MIT, and hundreds of other colleges over foreign student visas, ending a standoff that could have sent thousands of foreign students back to their home countries and left schools scrambling to plan for the fall. A federal judge announced the government had agreed to rescind a new policy requiring international students to take at least one in-person class, permitting the foreign students to take online classes only during the health crisis. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland & Knight. Leon, let's start with a little bit of background. Explain what the government did in its July 6th directive.
6: So here's what happened. We had a normally functioning student visa system for many, many years. And then when COVID-19 struck America in January and then really, really started to strike in March, I started to have a problem because universities started closing down. And so the question was, what would I do with all of these foreign students? Because the existing state of the law had been for many years that you cannot get a student visa to come to America to take fully online classes. The limit was you could only take three hours a week of online class. And you needed to take at least nine additional hours per week of in-person education. So that's the law. That's the law that existed. I suspended that law in March because obviously students had paid tuition. They'd been here and there was no use in saying they had to leave anyway because there were no planes that would have taken them home. And so they said students can finish their term online and this would create no problem. The question that became, now that we had some time and some critical distance, what would you do with September in a world where it was unclear whether schools would stay open, whether they would close down and do online, or whether they would do a mix of both? And so then, because of that, I thought about the problem, and they issued guidance that said, if the school has any in-person components, then the student could remain in the United States and go to the school. But if the school was a fully online school, there was no reason for the student to remain in the United States. And so there are so many dimensions and levels to look at that problem, because if you look at it as purely a pointy headed immigration question, I have no doubt that that's the correct decision, because you can't be in America for the purpose of doing something that the visa does not permit you to do. But if you look at it as a practical question, you start asking yourself, well, what are these actual human beings who are here supposed to do? Are they supposed to, you know, they've now paid for two years of college or three years of college. Are they supposed to go home and risk that they'll never come back again and never be able to finish school? Are they supposed to subject themselves to flights that might endanger them? Are they supposed to, you know, go to school where that might endanger them? Whereas, you know, there is a very simple solution, which is people stay home, which is what they've been doing, and take the classes. And so if you look at it from that perspective, it seems very harsh, you know, what you would do to these foreign students. And so those are the two main competing issues, plus the third issue of the general desire by this administration to want to open schools and their desire to use any lever possible to accomplish that.
3: Are there some students who actually might not be able to return home because of restrictions in their country on people coming from the United States?
6: There are countries that have completely banned reentry of anybody from that country. So, for instance, if you're coming from Venezuela or you're coming from some other countries in South America, you just can't come back in the country. There are others where it's hard to get in, but it can be done. And there are others where it's easier to get in. So it just depends on the student. And that's the, perfect, that's the perfect kind of thing where if you had a blanket rule, what you would want to do is put an exception in for that exact concept, which is fine. You want to have a rule that says you can't study purely online. One of the exceptions you might want to build into that is, but if the student can't return home because there are no flights available to that student's country, then that might want to be an exception that you make, for instance.
3: So these are rules of ICE. does, Does ICE have the power to make these rules and regulations on its own?
6: Yeah, so what happens is there's a student visa statute that's created by Congress in the Immigration and Nationality Act, and that gives broad delegations to the Department of Homeland Security writ large, which then the Department of Homeland Security then designated to ICE to run this thing called the Student and Exchange Visitor Program. And the Student and Exchange Visitor Program issued regulations a long time ago that were done appropriately with notice and comment and with all the proper procedures. That said, when you come here to the United States, you have to be coming to the United States to physically attend school and could only spend no more than three hours online. Those rules were relaxed, and one could argue there was no basis to relax those rules. But in the end, nobody was going to oppose that because we were in the middle of a COVID crisis. But those rules were relaxed to say that students could fully attend online last semester. The question was whether those relaxed rules should be maintained for this semester.
3: Leon, was there any common claim in all these federal lawsuits?
6: Yeah, there's basically three separate claims. And by the way, there should be more claims, I think, but there are three basic claims. One claim is, that this was a new rule that was announced without formal notice and comment. Rulemaking, that's number one. That's a simple enough claim, meaning, you know, you're changing the whole system here. How are you going to do that unless you put notice and comment? The second was that the rule itself is arbitrary and capricious because it's not serving a purpose. And so the, the way that would play out is the judge would ask, what is the purpose of this rule? And the government's going to have to say, well, the purpose of this rule is to keep people out who aren't legitimate students. And the point would be in return, well, we already know these are, are legitimate students. They've been here. They've been studying. This isn't about issuance of new visas. This is about the legitimate students that were already here. Why can't they just stay here and finish their degree? And I think it will be hard to articulate a reason why you need to punish those people And kick them out of the country rather than let them finish their degree here. And then the third one is sort of a due process type of claim, which is sort of the idea that the government's endangering the safety of these individuals who are here by either forcing them to go to school, which might endanger their safety, or by forcing them to take an airplane that they don't want to take if they're sick or whatever. That might endanger them if they're taking one or two or three or four flights. However many it takes to get to their ultimate destination, that that entire process could endanger the person as well, and that that would be a reason that you would build some sort of health exception into this.
3: The government capitulated only eight days after it had announced the directive. The judge announced the rescission of the directive at the very start of the hearing in Boston. What happened?
6: I think what happened was there were so many lawsuits that had been filed in the last 24 hours. It was going to have to be defended in so many different venues. And the fact that the net result of all of those different lawsuits would have meant that by the time you got to the Supreme Court, it would have been in the middle of the semester. I think they decided it's not worth it to have this kind of uncertainty for students here who are ultimately trying to figure out what the law is to comply by. And they can't control either what their school does or what these courts do. And so I think that's why they pulled out of this guidance.
3: So where does this leave their, their guidance? Where is their guidance stand now? So,
6: so we have been talking about the concept of do they revert back to the original regulation or to March. And so what was actually quite stunning is that they reverted back to March. So the guidance is at the moment that if you are pursuing your course of study, even if it's completely online, you can do it from the United States. Now, what's still unclear is whether visas will be granted because some embassies are opening this week and next week for people who are gonna come to the United States to do only online education. At the moment, there's nothing theoretically preventing that, but my suspicion is that somewhere along the line, the administration is going to try to block that again because it's one thing to treat the people here fairly, But it's another thing to see whether the administration will let people come to the United States for the purpose of studying online.
3: This March guidance, this guidance now, wasn't adopted under the rules of the Administrative Procedure Act.
6: Correct. It was just emergency, it was an emergency memorandum that said, we will not say that anyone is out of status as long as they're taking the classes they're supposed to take, regardless of whether they are online or not. And what the administration has decided to do by settlement, which they're certainly allowed to do, and if it becomes a settlement that's actually entered by the court, then that's the force of law. So that's even stronger than a regulation, which would be to keep the March guidance going for a certain period. So we'd have to see what's in the actual settlement, but the court orally announced the settlement and what the court said is that that, orally that that settlement is that they will revert back to the March guidance and they will in no way tried to enforce any of the guidance that's been issued in July.
3: What does the law say about international students? The
6: regulation that governs the Student and Exchange Visitor Program says that a student cannot be lawfully in the United States if they're taking more than three hours of online classes. The March guidance was emergency guidance, which says that the student can take entirely online classes as long as they're actually taking them. And the schools are verifying that they're taking them, which is actually pretty easy for the schools to do because you're leaving a digital footprint every time you log into whether it's Zoom or Microsoft Teams or something like that. And so the school can certainly verify that the student attended the class. And so under that scenario, the student is maintaining their legal status.
3: It's a little bit mind-boggling to me that this happened so fast. The rule was put in last week, and they had the lawsuits filed. They didn't even have a full court hearing before they decided, okay, we're going to take it all back.
6: I think what happens, and the best example of this in the past was the first travel ban, where I think what happens is, despite the intention of what the law is and what the people want to do with the law, they realize that the overwhelming weight of lawsuits, so we saw this in the travel ban and we're seeing it here, sometimes you can actually get to an issue where when you get to it, you know you're not going to be able to win. And the problem is, as we said, the best case scenario for the administration was going to be to revert back to the guidance and literally lead to the removal of all the foreign students because no school is opening up completely and entirely. And so I just think in the end, the administration just didn't want to go there because they knew that the financial impact of doing that was actually more harmful to the United States than keeping people here in the United States who are taking money from their parents abroad and buying things and renting apartments and, you know, buying clothes and food, et cetera. And so all of that is actually helpful to our economy at this time, as opposed to, removing those people from the economy.
3: From what you know, the schools didn't give in at all. They didn't make any concessions.
6: Absolutely not. It does that look like any concessions have been given? The only question that is still left up in the air that I don't think has been resolved by today is did the administration agree to bind itself with regard to new individuals coming into the United States? But my suspicion is I don't think at the end of this, when this all plays out, that you will be able to get a visa to enter the United States to fully attend online classes.
3: That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. I'm June Brosso and this is Bloomberg.
1: The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how.
2: The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's in Einstein with Salesforce.